0: businesses, but especially governments that are trying to respond to China's increasing military, economic, and and other capabilities really take this into account. Its activities, its foreign policy, and even its domestic policy are very much constrained by its geography.
1: Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series about geopolitics from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm your host, Roger Baker. The refocus on great power competition has brought about a surge of new analysis on China, focusing on the Belt and Road Initiative, on China's naval buildup, on geoeconomic coercion, and wolf warrior diplomacy. With talk of a Cold War 2.0, there's a similar risk of oversimplifying perceptions of China, of painting them as 10 feet tall, of century planners who appear always successful. As with any country, the reality is far different. China's leadership is perhaps even more concerned about their domestic socioeconomic balance than it is about U.S. faun-ops in the South China Sea. I'm joined today by Michael Cunningham, a geopolitical analyst and China watcher who has assisted multinational corporations as they manage and maneuver changes in China's political, regulatory, and security environment. Michael has recently returned to the United States after living and working in China off and on since 2006. Thank you for joining me today, Michael.
0: Thanks for having me, Roger.
1: So, Michael, having uh, had the opportunity to look at China from the inside um, and and during this uh, interesting rising moment in in how China deals with all of its neighbors and looks internally, um, how do you see the U.S. and the Chinese perceive or misperceive one another?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, actually, uh, I, I think what was driven home uh, perhaps the most in all of my experience in China is, and my experience in Washington uh, talking about China is how poorly the U.S. and China understand each other. And I think that's really um, – there are two reasons for this, and they're kind of uh, conflicting – but one is that both sides tend to over-mystify each other. So in the U.S., uh, you you constantly hear people talking about oh uh, this this East versus West thing. Oh, China's an Eastern country and we're a Western country. Um, or or they uh, another one that I hear a lot of is is this. Uh, over-fixation on Sun Tzu and the art of war and, and, and constantly trying to sort of uh, use that to explain uh, how China is behaving, whereas in reality, it's usually uh, the Chinese government is just trying to resolve problems that it created by trying to resolve other problems, uh, Not not very dissimilar from how the U.S., uh, operates, um, and so th- the other thing that I see is that uh, the U.S. and China tend to project their own attributes, their own values, strategic culture, and whatnot on each other. Um, and sometimes they they, they do that; uh, they they actually ignore the actual real differences that exist. And so, um, recently, uh, for example, I I was. Uh, in a a WeChat group um, with some political analysts in China, and they were talking about and, and just really building on each other, talking about how uh, you know how wrong it is to say that the U.S. and China don't have similar values. That actually they're uh, actually they're all the same, and and just one thing built on another, and uh, they they just kept um, confirming. Uh, each other's perceptions, um, but uh, in reality, uh, if you talk to the Chinese, uh, sure, the the people throughout the world tend to have similar values about how they want to live their lives, um, what 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 they feel as as being morally right and wrong. But political values of, of China and the U.S. are very different, and it, it may sound politically correct to say oh, we're all the same, we all want the same things. But uh, try convincing the Chinese that, um, so uh, for example, um, I think one huge failure in u s policy over the years, which actually uh, to to their credit um, the the most recent couple of u s administrations have toned this down quite a bit, but it was that stated desire for China to become democratic, and so uh, this um, you know th- th- this whole well this this belief that the chinese government must want to run its its country uh the best way possible and and uh improve the living standards of its people the best way possible and that's true to an extent but uh when the us calls for democracy in china what uh surprisingly uh, people in the us have a hard time recognizing is that to the Chinese government, that's a huge threat, and the Chinese government actually views such statements as calls for regime change. And so, these are some of the, I guess, some of the areas where uh, perceptions um, uh, of China by the U.S. or of the U.S. by China tend to actually uh, create more harm than good.
1: Well, as you, as you note, the you know the U.S. perception of China is shaped by things like the idea that the East must be very different than the West. That Sun Tzu is the the font of all wisdom in China. Um, these days, that the Warring States period uh, is the definition of how China looks at everything internationally and strategically. Uh, the idea that uh, the U.S. plays checkers or at best plays chess, but the Chinese play Go, and, and all of these these analogies of of highlighting. Significant difference. Um, What were some of the ways, though, that you saw the the lens that the Chinese saw the United States through?
0: That was actually fascinating. So uh, I can use uh, an experience from back in 2008 to uh, describe that. So I was uh, in back in 2008, I spent some time uh, studying international relations at Tsinghua University. And I was in this class, and, and, and the, the classes were all, they were not geared towards foreigners. Um, I was uh, auditing these classes, uh, but they were, all of my classmates essentially were Chinese. The the professors were Chinese. And so it was a, a very interesting opportunity to sort of see how they teach and how they perceive uh Various political topics and and they tended to focus on the u s because obviously there 's a lot you can 't really talk about openly uh, with regards to china, and so a lot of the examples they would use would well when the u s did this or did that and and the, the most fascinating one of the most fascinating things i 've ever heard um, about about the u s was uh, how they taught What made the U.S. the most powerful country on earth was some uh, supposed strategic decision back in World War II to let the two sides slaughter each other and then come in at the end and recreate the world in the U.S.'s own image. So you come in at the end when both sides are just exhausted and, and have just been beaten to a pulp and you lay down the law. And I, I had to admit that's a fascinating and brilliant strategy, and and I wouldn't put it past the Chinese to think up such a strategy. In fact, they um, they have thought it up uh, in retrospect, um, but you know they they just completely ignored or or, or didn't understand uh, how the U.S. operates and and the the uh, domestic impediments to the u.s getting involved prior to the bombing of world of pearl harbor so uh yeah that was um i i think um essentially the same thing that the u.s uh, does, does to china was china sort of takes its strategic culture its values and china is a very very realist country so it's it's uh it's driven by, by realism, and, and it views the U.S. as the most powerful country on Earth, as the the most hard-nosed realist uh, on the planet, whereas many of us in the U.S. would, would hope the U.S. would uh, be a little more realistic and, and, and act a little more in accordance with with national interest as opposed to, to some of its uh, uh, other um, uh, objectives of democratization and whatnot overseas.
1: Well, it's an interesting um you know a, a way that we see on both sides this uh application of uh agency uh in outcome, in other words, the idea that if a certain outcome happened, it must have been intentional the u s must have decided to wait the simple fact that the u s ultimately was late coming into World War two and ended up shaping the international system um you know doesn't necessarily mean that that was the intent uh and similar i think as some people look at the evolution of belt and road there's going to be similar ideas you know the idea well was china going out to uh connect the entire eurasian landmass and create mackinder's world island and and dominate the world or is or are there other aspects that drive that um one of the things i'd like to to get your thoughts on is Moving in internally, because, of course, China is this complex space, just as the Chinese view the U.S. as this realist monolith, um, at least at the surface level, uh, the U.S. looks at China as this single entity that that everybody who is Chinese in China is the same, except maybe over on the fringe with the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. Um, and and that monolithic concept, but China is a much more complicated place. If you were to step back and kind of pick it apart from a from a geopolitical synthesis or or an analysis to break pieces up, how would you look at the interior dynamics of China?
0: Yeah, that's um, uh, this is actually probably one of the least understood uh, aspects of China, as you said. Um, you know, and I, I think it comes because w- when we when we talk about it and we we uh, conduct studies on international relations we're always looking at the state but um as you said it's it's not the state that's acting it's 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 um or it's it's not acting as 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 a whole but it's it's really a process which um as you i think you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast uh that china is its actions, uh, even its foreign policy, are, are caused a lot more by what's happening in China than what's happening on the outside. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, China is uh, probably, well, it's one of the most complicated countries, complex countries on the planet. Um, so it has a huge number of overlapping, sometimes conflicting interests among uh, different government bodies and different politicians. So uh, another thing that happens is is the central government, it um, it makes these broad policy statements, but the actual governance and the actual implementation is really up to uh, a massive army of of um, local officials, which all have different interpretations and different interests and different uh, levels of compliance themselves. And so, China, um, whereas um, you know, some people would look and 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 it's true, they'd say, well, China has perhaps one of the most coherent long-term policy directions um, among major countries. And it it has a pretty coherent national strategy, Um, but that's just on the surface. Under the surface, uh, there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of uh, cutthroat competition among government officials, and there's a lot of competing – um, interests, even even national interests, that are are competing, just like you'd see in the the U.S. or, or other countries that that um, that uh, have have a lot of priorities. So, um, I, I think a, a couple key points about. Uh, China's domestic situation is that, uh, number one, the officials, they don't answer to the people, but they answer to a very a much smaller group of senior officials, officials more senior than they are, um, who then answer to officials who are above them. And, and, and that's how it goes, sort of more similar to a, a business than a government. Um, and so it's very hard to advance uh, in this system. And uh, this uh, causes the competition that we see, a competition both between government bodies whose heads and, and senior leaders want recognition, but uh, also between officials. Um, and so you see a lot of actual wiretapping, surveillance uh, among uh, Communist Party officials uh, against each other. They're all trying to discredit one another and maneuver uh, in, into positions of of higher leadership. Um, so on top of all of this, so they're not only competing against each other, but they also have the non governmental stakeholders, businesses, uh, their nationalistic public, and and these things are are quite familiar to us. Uh, pretty much every government deals with these and and has to has to worry about how their actions will be perceived domestically. So uh, the the result is that. Uh, as you said, um the main driver of China's domestic policy is domestic politics. Uh, so there we've seen a couple examples of 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 this recently uh Yang diecher's his diatribe in in Alaska in march um, It was carefully scripted, not as brilliantly performed as perhaps um you might expect, but um brilliantly uh, or carefully scripted. Um, both, so that his superiors uh, in Beijing and the nationalistic public would 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 be proud of him and and pleased with what what he said. So, according to people I've talked with who are familiar with the proceedings of of that meeting in Alaska, as soon as the camera stopped rolling, Yang's tone completely changed, and he was almost uh, I don't want to say pleading, but it was he he was very urgently. Um, and earnestly asking his U.S. counterparts to return to the bargaining table to bring back the um, uh, strategic dialogues. Um, another example, and I think this is a, a much more dangerous example, is, is how we see a lot um, in the U.S., how we see the situation unfolding in Taiwan. So uh, based on academic theory, and it's very good, very coherent academic theory, um, the idea would be that China wants to take control of Taiwan as, as part of its play for regional dominance. And so it's it's a geopolitical thing. But in reality, the Chinese government's main interest in, in Taiwan is not to permanently lose claim to the island. So for this reason, it wants to avoid war at all costs because it fear it fears that if 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 the war doesn't go in its favor then essentially it's lost taiwan permanently it would i guess function similar to the the war of 1812 in the us uh, after that war it was pretty much clear to 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 the uk that um that the us can hold its own still and and that was a turning point there. So it would be a similar type of turning point for Taiwan. Um, So it's um, uh, China's actions right now are, are very much aimed at preventing what it honestly believes, and it sounds ridiculous to those of us more familiar with the situation in Taiwan and in Washington, but but its, its leaders have very low tolerance for this type of risk and they honestly believe that Taiwan is moving towards independence or the U.S. is moving towards recognizing Taiwan. And so everything they're doing is to prevent that type of action because they would have to respond militarily. Their nationalistic public would not let them not respond, and they feel that a a failure to hold on to Taiwan, anything they do that would result in losing Taiwan permanently, would would be the end of of the senior officials' careers, but it also – I'm more skeptical about this but the Chinese government or the communist party believes it could even lead to their downfall. So, another example of how it's it's very much domestic politics that's driving policy, foreign policy, uh more so than these geopolitical interests.
1: Hold that thought a moment, we'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, when we look at the a, a, an oversimplified history of of China as a as a great power throughout history, um we see that pattern of consolidation of a very complex polity across a very large geography then the uh rapid and and large scale expansion of a bureaucracy to be able to manage that and ultimately uh the devolution of power to that bureaucracy that the bureaucracy the local interests become more powerful almost than the central dynamic and, and that that then when there is a strain or a stress the system breaks down and there's a reassertion of power, recentralization and things of that sort. And I think that, that that recognition of history and that pattern is something that in part we see the, the Communist Party leadership trying to manage today by partially recentralizing power under Xi Jinping um, and also, uh, uh, you know, trying to retake control of some of these, these regional dynamics. But the tighter they they try to re-centralize power, the more they challenge some of the localized interests that have been built up over periods of time, and the more they run the risk of uh, some form of factionalization reasserting itself in China um, and becoming stronger. And I wonder in in that domestic dynamic, as you've talked about um, have you seen? Because in the West, there's a clear perception that Xi Jinping was a fundamental break in in China, and in some ways, we we could say that in the in certainly in the post Deng era, there is a a pattern break where you move from consensus politics to strongman or or individual uh, to allow, in some ways, China to be able to make more rapid decisions, respond better, um, but also it ends up consolidating on a single person. Have you seen a change in tone over your time and interactions in China? In the way in which they perceive either these domestic or their international position that that coincides or parallels with that transition of power to Xi Jinping
0: yes that's a very good question and and definitely um, uh, so i I guess uh, when I first arrived in China, there was this um, almost this worship of all things foreign. Um, and that changed. In fact, I remember, and, and it was, it actually, um, in some ways it's actually more pleasant now because you don't have as many people lining up to take pictures with you or, you know, to practice English with you or something, but, um, but on, on the other hand, there is sort of more of this triumphalism and uh, just random conversations, especially when you get out into the countryside. Um, I just spent uh, a month traveling around rural China, and it was an amazing experience. It was really nice. But, um uh, one thing that I noticed was just uh, the random person that you talk to, from a taxi driver to a, a tourist from elsewhere in China to just the locals. You know, it's 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 always this. So what do you think of China? And and then they, you know, you you're not you don't want to be rude and point out the negatives. You're only going to focus on the positives and. And they just build on that and they keep going and going and uh, singing praises to to their government and to the great rejuvenation um, and then proceed to denigrate the United States, um, uh, not even considering that that would be impolite to do to an American. So uh, uh, it's uh, definitely there. The the entire tone has changed uh, in China.
1: You mentioned before in talking about Taiwan or in talking about the the incident in Alaska, how the domestic constituency shapes um, the outside policy or shapes the foreign policy of China. What are some of the ways that, that you're seeing or that we're seeing the changes or the evolution of China's outside policy um, and the way it's interacting uh, and its priorities? Okay,
0: so... Um China has you know it's it's over the years uh definitely gone from having uh just just a a small set of interests uh, abroad um, and, you know, back in those days, there was this debate over, well, what should our focus be? Should it be on the developed countries like the United States, the great powers? Or should we be focusing on our peripheral diplomacy? Or should we, you know, with uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia and whatnot, or should we be focusing on the developed world? Um, but um, currently, it's, it's basically... Yes, all of the above. China has so many more interests uh, overseas um, from uh, – through through the Belt and Road, through all of its massive amounts of investment uh, all throughout the world, um, Chinese personnel living throughout the world. And so it's it's really gotten to the point where although it still um, talks about how we will never – seek to expand. We, uh, will never try to be the world police or whatever, um, and, and criticizing the U.S. on, on these, uh, accounts very much. It, it does have more and more, uh, operations overseas and, and it probably will. Um, so previously it spent, I don't know how many years, um, uh, convincing the world and, and its people that it, that it's, uh, it's that it will never have overseas military bases and that it's uh its facility in Djibouti uh was not a base and would not be a base and and then a couple of years ago when it opened up um as a military base as China's only military base overseas on um, that I think it it really uh I guess foreshadowed um, more of what we're going to see, especially along the Belt and Road. So um, I, I would say that there probably is more emphasis on peripheral diplomacy now and on the developed world uh, as opposed to previously sort of trying to placate the uh, – the great powers the the status quo powers in the world and trying to convince them that um you know w- we're not threatening our rise will will be good for the international system to very much still and they're still doing that but I think now we're seeing more and more of this outreach to uh more revision revisionist powers like like Russia and um and uh sort of the, the developed world that has very much been left behind, or the developing world that has very much been left behind, and sort of this, you know, we are here to help support you and to improve the international system.
1: It would it would seem that uh, as we look at China, its geographic position obviously has an impact on where and how it's going to shape and prioritize its its military focus, its military development. Obviously, The greater economic connectivity of China internationally has also created vulnerabilities, which may account in part for this broader expansion of China's um, military and naval capabilities. Um, The base in Djibouti, which sits right near uh, major energy routes and things of that sort – but, but of course, China is in a very, very crowded neighborhood, very different than the United States, which effectively has two peaceful powers on its only two land borders uh, and then large maritime space around it. China still contends with this large amount of land powers around it as well as a maritime seaboard. Um, do, do you think that the, the geography also then plays a role in what China is not only focusing on but what it ultimately is capable of prioritizing?
0: Yes, and I think this is uh, – this is one of the most important questions uh, when, when it comes to China's military modernization and, and its its more uh, assertiveness uh, abroad. Is um, it's it's important that we actually take this into consideration and that policymakers from whether it's businesses but especially governments uh, that are trying to respond to China's uh, increasing military, economic, and and other capabilities really take this into account Um, because, uh, as you said, its activities, its foreign policy, and even its domestic policy are very much constrained by its geography. So looking at this, um, I guess just geographically, um, China has, as you said, it, it has lots of it 's in a crowded neighborhood, so it, it has land borders with fourteen countries that 's more than any other country in the world um, and and its relations with many of these countries are are, are quite tense, uh, so it has a, a great relationship with Russia right now, but that relationship is based on mutual interest, mutual opposition to to the u s to u s dominance. And uh, you know in, in talking with people in china i don 't have as many friends in russia to uh, to speak with, but in talking with my Chinese friends um, they don 't necessarily trust russia um, so um, that 's one issue is just just the the land borders, the sea borders with many other countries and and large amount of territorial disputes. Um, so really – oh, and, and adding on top of that is, is that China's border regions um, tend to be uh, from Tibet, Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia, um, even its uh, regions you don't really talk about as much uh, like Yunnan and, and Guangxi. These are regions that are very much made up of, of um, minority groups, and these minorities, ethnic minorities, are often – ethnically, culturally, uh, and sometimes religiously more, uh, more akin to the, the countries surrounding them. And so China is very, although it doesn't have serious uh, security dilemmas in these areas, and, and there are not really threatening um, uh, separatist movements, although there have been to an extent in the past in some of these areas, uh, China is very concerned about these areas, and so uh, whereas the u s as you said it has it 's bordered by two countries, both of which it has a great relationship with, um, and and neither of which is a, a military threat a, th- a threat to its, uh, to its national security so we have um, in China, we have many many, many border countries, we also have these border regions within China and these these prevent China from being able to uh, take its military and just shift it overseas um, to to the extent the u s can so the u s fights you know it, it protects its national security mostly overseas, whereas China is going to have to protect its national security much closer to home, focused on its border regions, which it does now, and also focused on on its periphery, which includes many great powers. I think this is probably the most important thing. When we talk about China rivaling the U.S. for hegemony, um, one thing that we often don't consider is that the U.S. is the sole hegemon, the sole great power essentially on the in the Western Hemisphere, whereas China has to deal with uh, Russia, Japan, India, uh, all sorts of countries. Even even South Korea is a force to be reckoned with, and especially if uh, eventually there's a there's a unification of the Korean Peninsula. And so, it it has a lot more that it has to deal with at home. Uh, the U.S. was able to avert that once it got the the uh, the. European powers to leave the hemisphere but China doesn't have that uh that uh, capability and and that that affects everything really that it does it affects all of its strategic planning and and its its activities overseas
1: well i know that we could probably go on for for another couple of hours here at least and china is one of these gigantic topics uh, to be able to deal with but I think we're pushing time here. I want to thank you uh, for joining me here today. Michael Cunningham is a geopolitical analyst focusing on China's internal dynamics and international relations. And thank you for your time today here, Michael.
0: Thank you, Roger. It was a pleasure.
1: Stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments. Sign up for our free newsletter. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.